As you turn to John chapter 18, put your, your finger there or one of these little black markers that we have in our Bibles. Maybe yours is a red. Uh, turn over to 1 Timothy 6. Uh, I want to start there this morning. You'll see why in just a moment. These are Paul's closing words to his young protege, Timothy. And this is a letter that's filled with all kinds of personal exhortations like be on guard against false teachers, avoid silly, irreverent myths, minister with integrity, seek the ultimate prize. And then in in some of these final words here, uh, Paul tells Timothy this, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in approachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So this is a call to finish well. It is a call to fight the good fight of faith. And twice Paul uses the phrase, the good confession. So he says to Timothy, take hold of the eternal life, to which you were called about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So a confession, a, a um, you know, the word, it, I, don't, I don't like do a ton of Greek, but the, the, the Greek word kind of preaches. It, it's homo legeo. The, the Greek word for confession is homo legeo. Homo means same and legeo means speak. So literally in the Greek, to, to make a confession is to say the same thing as. So in a sense, you are, you are saying the same thing as God. This confession, Timothy has made the good confession. We just read a confession, things that are true. We agree with God that these things are true. And then he says, referring to Jesus Christ, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Timothy... I charge you in the presence of Christ, who made the good confession before Pontius Pilate to hold to the confession that you made so that you will be able to take hold of eternal life. So what is uh, Christ's good confession before Pontius Pilate? And why would Paul direct Timothy to consider Christ's testimony before Pilate? And this Sunday and next, we're going to have opportunity to take a look at Pontius Pilate and this interaction that Jesus has with Pontius Pilate. We're going to consider these questions. Paul holds up Jesus' interaction with Pilate as something that we should consider as we fight the good fight of faith. And so this morning, I want to start by asking the question, who was Pontius Pilate, okay? And don't think that this is just sort of like extra historical interesting stuff that I'm throwing in to fill some time, all right? This is actually really pertinent uh, to what we're going to talk about. Let me tell you a little bit about Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate would almost certainly have been lost to history had he not been a part of this 
great drama that was Christ's crucifixion. He was a Roman governor. He was the prefect of Judea. Not a particularly good one. He, his job was to administer Judea on behalf of Rome. And, and like I said, from everything we know about him, he, he didn't do a very good job of that. Uh, up until the last century, so in the 1900s even, there was a lot of people who questioned whether or not Pontius Pilate ever actually existed. So he's mentioned in the Bible, of course, and then he's mentioned by a couple of ancient historians, Philo and uh, Josephus, but sophisticated critics and scholars and all the smart people, they don't necessarily take that stuff real, so they don't see any reason to consider that that should be evidence of his existence. Now, let me say this. I don't need any biblical, uh, extra-biblical evidence to believe that Pilate was a real person. If there was not another shred of evidence in existence in this world, I would still believe that what the Bible says is true about Pilate and that he was a real person involved in a real trial about Jesus. But thankfully, as recently as the last century, some archaeological evidence came about. And uh, so in 1961, an Italian archaeologist was working in a place called Caesarea Maritima. It's a place on the coast of Israel. It's where Paul was kept when he was uh, standing before uh, Festus and King Agrippa. That's where Pilate lived. So even though we're going to see Pilate in Jerusalem for the Passover, and that's why he's a part of this drama, Pilate lived up on the coast in this place called Caesarea Maritima, and they found there this limestone rock. It was laying face down. So what happens is over the course of millennia, as different civilizations are destroyed, a lot of times the next generation uh, will, will come and take like the rocks and things and they'll repurpose them. So this rock that had, had once been uh, uh, obviously standing up was now just used as like part of the pavement. So they, they found it and they set it up, they flipped it up, and on the, on the back side of it, written in Latin, were these words, Pontius Pilate, Prefect of Judea. It's kind of on the nose, don't you think? It's like, wow, well, there you go, that's it, that's... That's, uh, that's the evidence that we needed that Pontius Pilate actually existed. You can look that up. It's called the Pontius Pilate inscription. Don't Google that right now. Uh, Google it later and you can, you can see. It's, it's uh, there in the Museum in Israel for everybody to see. Nobody is going to get saved because archaeology proves the Bible. There will always be critics and doubters. But it is very good for us as Christians to remember that God has revealed himself in real history through real events and real people, all right? Sometimes you will hear someone say, students, you may go to college and you may have that cool professor with the cool hair and the cool glasses and the cool clothes, and he will say to you something that sounds really cool, like, it doesn't really matter if it's true historically, it's true spiritually, and we just, we can all learn from it, even though it's not really true. It's true, but it's not true. That's utter nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. The living God has communicated to his people through real events. If these people and these events aren't true, we are wasting our time here this morning, and we should be out on this beautiful day in a boat somewhere, all right? So Pilate, Pontius Pilate was a real person. We just read the Apostles' Creed together. It says that Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate. The early church believed that this second-rate Roman governor mattered enough to include him in this historic confession of faith. Young people, 
Again, lots of people, lots of smart people, or people who want to tell you they're smart, will want you to doubt the historicity of the Bible. Don't fall for it. The facts of the Bible are reliable. All right, so let me tell you a little bit more about this man, Pontius Pilate. So Tiberius Caesar succeeded Augustus in AD 14, and Pontius Pilate became the governor or prefect of Judea in 26 AD. So Roman governors had two responsibilities. If they were doing these two things, then Rome was happy. They were to keep the peace and collect taxes. That was their job. Uh, the general idea is that as long as the, like, conquered civilization behaved themselves, so in this case it was the Jews, if they paid their taxes and kept the peace, then they could live peacefully under the Roman Empire. But, of course, this is the Jews, and they didn't keep the peace. So Pilate had his hands full. According to Josephus, when Pilate, when Pilate first came into uh, Judea, he decided to come in carrying images of Tiberius on poles, you know, sort of marching in with all of his entourage. And you guys, if there's one thing the Jews know that you're not supposed to do, you're not supposed to have a God on an image, all right? And so, and Caesar, of course, proclaims himself to be God. So in comes Pilate, and he stirs up quite a ruckus. He comes into Jerusalem. He goes back to Caesarea Maritima, and the Jews Uh, The Jewish leaders come there, and they start really making things hard for Pilate there at Caesarea Maritima, and he gets frustrated, so he calls them into the amphitheater there in Caesarea Maritima, and he says, all right, either you settle down and quit all this, or I'm going to kill all of you, and I'm not removing that image. And they all went, okay, have at it. And Pilate backed down. He backed down, okay? So in that case, he lost. This is not a good start, right? Later, Pilate wanted to build an aqueduct. Fresh water seems like a good thing. He takes money from the temple treasury. The people rioted. That time, he did kill people. And then a third time, he made some new shields for his troops. This guy doesn't really learn, or or he's really stubborn, and he puts images of Caesar on his shields for the troops. The Jews did what they always did, They demanded that the images be removed. Pilate refused. This time, they sent emissaries to Rome to tell Tiberius what Pilate was doing, and Tiberius Caesar sent word back to Pilate to say, take the images off of the shields, all right? So Pilate is embarrassed. He is humiliated. And so by the time, and this is why I tell you all of this, By the time Jesus appears before Pilate, early on that Friday morning, he is on thin ice with Caesar and with the Jews. So his job, if his job is to keep peace and collect taxes, at the very least, he is not keeping the peace. So at the end of it all, when Pilate is going to put Jesus on the cross, and the Jews say, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend, everyone who appears, who uh, uh, makes himself um, king opposes Caesar. When he says that, Pilate is out of options. If he releases Jesus, he is going to at best cause another riot, and at worst, he's going to end up in hot water with Tiberius yet again. And so, being the coward that he was, he sentenced Jesus to death. Pilate killed Jesus to keep his job. And that's why it's important to understand some of that background and some of what's already going on as Jesus appears before Pilate 
on that Friday morning. Let's read together. I'll read it. You guys read along in your Bible. Uh, This morning, we will take chapter 18, uh, verses 18 through 38. No, we will not. We will start in verse 28. Yep, and then we'll go down uh, through verse 40. Okay. Uh, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This is to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he went to die. So Pilate entered into his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, did you say this of your own accord or do others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? All right, so here's what we're going to do. We are going to see if we can begin to discern this week and next week, what is it about this good confession that Paul wants Timothy and us, I would argue, to consider as we fight the good fight of faith. And so I very simply divided this passage into three headings this morning, Christ and the hypocrisy of his enemies, Christ and his kingdom, and Christ and his mission. All right, so let's just jump in here, Christ and the hypocrisy of his enemies. So Matt took time a couple of weeks ago to explain to you about the trials, the three trials. Jesus' trial in that morning has six sections, three before the Jews and three before the Gentiles. So Matt took time uh, two weeks ago to explain the trial before the Jews, and now these three sections of Jesus' trial will take place, one before Pilate, then one before Herod, and then another one before Pilate. So I won't go back over that this morning. John skips over most of those Jewish trials and goes right to Pilate. Now, at the end of the trial before Caiaphas, the high priest tears his clothes. He declares Jesus guilty. They finally get this confession that he is the Son of God, and they declare that he's a blasphemer. And it says, Matthew says, he says, then they spit spit on his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? And I, I raise that only to say that as Pilate comes, uh, Christ comes before Pilate early on this Friday morning, he's already looking pretty bad, all right? So he's bruised, he's beaten. There's a chance that he has the spit of these men in his hair and on his beard. His hands are probably tied behind his back. And so it says then that they led him from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, that's Pilate, where he is staying in Jerusalem. It was early in the morning, and they themselves did not enter into the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. And I know Matt touched on this two weeks ago, but just to mention it again, John is clear about the hypocrisy of these religious leaders. 
They wait outside so that they will not defile themselves before Passover. Pilate is a Gentile. Jews believed that they were defiled by going into the house of a Gentile, and so they are willing to kill an innocent man, but they are unwilling to go into the house of Pilate. This is hypocrisy. This is racism. There was no such command in God's law. This was added to the law of God. This is legal justification for not having to be around people you don't like. Racism was not started with the United States of America. It goes back centuries. The wickedness of racism has been around since ancient times. And you know what? They're not just racist. They are self-righteous about their racism. These people are trying to make a way for their racism to be righteous. And so Pilate goes out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So not only are they hypocritical racists, but they are manipulators. Pilate asks a reasonable question. He has been woken up in the morning early to have to deal with this. Standing before him is a man beaten and spit upon, and Pilate's question is simply, why are we here? What, what is the accusation? And the Jews try to divert. Well, we, we wouldn't be here. Pilate, who do you think you are? We wouldn't be here. If this man were not an evil man, we wouldn't be here. And so you can already see that tension between the Jews and Pilate. And so they act irate as if Pilate is questioning their integrity. But really, they have no credible charge. So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it is, is it, not, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Again, hypocrisy on display. Pilate says, you go and take care of this. They say, well, we're not allowed to do that. We're not even allowed to put him to death. First of all, they want an execution. They're not interested in a trial. They have brought Jesus. They don't even pretend you go and try him yourself. We just want him executed. We want him made a spectacle of. We want to show what happens to false messiahs. But secondly, and this is another huge example of their hypocrisy, their claim that they don't think they can put him to death is just patently not true. And we know that because they stoned Stephen in Acts chapter 7 not very long later. Roman law forbid them from practicing capital punishment, but Pilate would have looked the other way, and they knew this. They are bringing to Jesus to him so that he can be made a spectacle of by the Romans. So how should we think about this in relation to the good confession before Jesus? Two things. It is very possible today to get bogged down in all the hypocrisy that we see from the enemies of Christ. Hypocrisy and corruption is thick. If you just look at the television, you will see politicians, corporations, entertainers, even evangelical leaders exhibiting unashamed, hypocritical behavior. Self-righteous people are always grandstanding in public. They say one thing one day, and they say the opposite the next. They manipulate the truth. They tell lies to accomplish their own ends, to get money, to get ahead. We see real people being exploited by powerful people, and it's so frustrating. And there's a temptation to want to be those people who are always trying to 
run around and call it out, or, or to be anxious about it, or to feel hopeless and helpless, and some join in, and both sidesism is just deplorable today. Well, they did it. They acted like this. Why can't we act like this? And I would say what I see Jesus here doing, and he is the Lord of glory, the righteous judge of the world, the holy son of God, and he is silent. He is not interested in addressing their hypocrisy and lies. And he could have called down real true judgment, but he is for the most part silent before his accusers, and he entrusts himself to the Father. Secondly, unlike Jesus, we are all hypocrites. So Jesus is the only truly righteous sufferer. He alone is guiltless. So before we go around casting our stones at the Pharisees here, we should consider where would we have stood that day? How often do we try to cover up our own righteous motives, our own rotten motives with righteousness? How often have we inverted laws to keep us from having to interact with people that we don't want to have to interact with? How often do we lie and manipulate to achieve our end? I've heard it said, be careful how you treat those Pharisees, because had you been there that Friday morning, you might have been standing right there with them, calling for the crucifixion of our Lord. So let's keep moving then. That's Christ and the hypocrites. Let's see Christ and his kingdom. Verse 33, so Pilate entered into his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or do others say it about me? This is the first time, two times, there are two times that Jesus is going to go into the private quarters of Pilate and he's going to have these conversations Back in verse 32, just previously, it says this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus is going to die on a cross. John gives us this verse to tell us who is really in control. And I, I, I want you to watch as we look at Pilate this week and next, I want you to see that there's this real question in this exchange of who's really in control here. So Pilate thinks he's in control. In this passage, and the next, we will see him talking to Jesus, and I think we will see it dawning on him the more he talks to him that Pilate is not in control, Jesus is actually in control. Just like he was in the garden, Jesus is in complete control. John actually places the pronoun up front here in Pilate's question. You? So you could read this, you are the king of the Jews? That's what he says, you so Jesus does not look very impressive. He's beaten. He's bruised. He's been spat upon. By the way, all four gospel writers record this as Pilate's opening question. And Pilate brings up Jesus' kingship over and over again. Clearly, Pilate is, is obsessed with this idea of Jesus as king. He examines Jesus' claims to be king. He sentences at him as a king. And then, as you know, when he crucifies him, he puts him under the banner, the king of the Jews. And there's some discussion as to the fate of Pilate, and I think that'll be something that we can talk about maybe a little bit next week. A lot of people, you know, sort of want to cite some church traditions that say Pilate eventually came to faith. We don't know, but he certainly had a lot of opportunity, as we'll see, to hear the truth from Jesus Christ. And so Jesus answers his question with a question, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say this to you about me? So Jesus is saying, are you asking me if I'm a political king, or are you asking me if I'm the Messiah? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me? What have you? Once again, it's like this issue of control here. Pilate is the Roman governor. He should be in control. 
And yet Jesus is asking the questions. And Pilate seems kind of put out. Who do you think you are? Who do you think I am? I'm not a Jew. I don't care. What have you done? I'm the one asking the question. But Jesus doesn't respond to Pilate's question. He answers a different question. And I think he answers the question that he knows Pilate is asking. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. I think Jesus is being very gracious to Pilate. I I think, unlike his unresponsiveness to the hypocritical religious leaders, he is willing to engage Pilate in this private conversation. The question that Pilate is really asking is, should I be worried about you? Is there anything about you I should worry about? Are you a threat to Rome? Are you a threat to me? Are you you out there gathering a militia in the wilderness? Because that's what false messiahs did. They gathered little militias and they made a headache for a little while and then they were put down and crucified and everybody went on their way. So what are you? Are you the real deal? Are you anybody I should be concerned with? Because you don't look like anybody I should be concerned. And Jesus says, oh, I'm a king. I love this because he says, I am a different king than you have ever conceived. Jesus is a king with a kingdom, but he is a king of an entirely different sort than Rome or any other kingdom that will arise out of this world. Does Pilate need to worry about Jesus as a king who is a rival to Rome? I think the answer is yes and no. The answer is yes, because in the long term, the kingdom of Christ is going to destroy all other earthly kingdoms. But in the short term, the answer is no, because Jesus says, I am not fighting like the world. I just have to, I want to underline this because I think this is so important right here. Jesus is so unimpressive. A beaten, spat upon man is claiming to be king in front of a Roman prefect. His hands are tied. He's weak and helpless. Pilate is surrounded by pomp and military might. He may have gotten up early in the, in the morning, but you can be sure he's not in his bathrobe. He put it all on. He is, he is in his full impressiveness, and in spite of all of that, Jesus is the real king. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And some take this to mean that Jesus is saying, well, you know what he's really doing right here is he's saying, you know what, my kingdom is totally different. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's clouds. It's heaven. Jesus isn't really going to reign in this world, but what he wants to do is he just wants to reign in your hearts, whatever that means. This is not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus is not undoing a single Old Testament promise of a kingdom privately with Pilate before he dies. Jesus is saying, I am a king, and my kingdom is coming, but it is not coming by military might. No earthly weapons, no earthly king is going to bring this kingdom. This is why Peter was told, put away your sword. In Daniel's vision in chapter 2, guys, I think Daniel is so important to understanding passages. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of the statue. I mean, remember it from Sunday school. If not, go read it later. And it's the statue on the plain and the top. The head of the statue is gold and the torso is silver, and the the thighs are bronze, and the legs and feet are iron. And and Daniel gets the interpretation of this dream, and he says, you, O Nebuchadnezzar, are the kingdom of gold. Oh, you're the head, 
And then there's going to be another kingdom. It's going to be a kingdom of silver, and there's going to be another kingdom of bronze, and then there's going to be another kingdom of iron, and there's going to be this whole progression of these Gentile kingdoms, and they're, they're vicious. Later on, there's another uh, vision in, in Daniel 7, the same thing, but this time, remember, it's, it's four monsters, and each monster that represents a kingdom is more vicious than the one before it. But in this vision, this statue, all of a sudden a rock, and Daniel says it is made without hands, comes and destroys that statue. And that rock becomes a mountain, and that mountain overtakes all the other kingdoms of the world, and it becomes the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is that rock. And he is going to become, it it is not going to be an army that comes and defeats the kingdoms of this world. Even now, as we look around us and we see all these mighty men fighting, there's another kingdom that's coming and it is going to utterly obliterate the kingdoms of this world. I believe that Jesus, the Son of God, lived by faith. I know that's weird, but I believe he did. I believe he is exercising faith here in spite of all evidence to the contrary. Nothing about what is happening here indicates that Jesus is king. He doesn't look like a king, but he is a king. And he is trusting that after being crucified, he will be raised from the dead and seated next to the Father. And one day when his enemies are put under his feet, he will return and he will take his place in the kingdom that God will give him on this earth. And as we stand before those who are powerful, whether they be kings or just supervisors at work, we too do so in faith. And when we are called before these seemingly powerful people to give testimony to Christ, we may feel overmatched, but we are not. And we can even say with Paul, I am weak, but he is strong. Because you see, there is this kingdom coming. And brothers and sisters, and if you are my brother and sister in Christ today, we are all children of the great king. And we are brothers and sisters with Jesus Christ. And our position in Christ is more real than all of these little petty rulers in this world right now who think they're kings. Those who rule right now, they're on shaky ground. They really are. The rock is coming. The one that is not made by human hands. And it is going to crush those kingdoms. The wicked world rulers today rule only because God allows them to. Their time is short. Their heart may beat for the last time at any moment. And so Jesus stands before Pilate, and with confidence, he says, I'm that king. Remember what he said to his disciples at the end of John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you have may, pe- may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He is the rock. Third, we see Christ in his mission. Verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Jesus presses in, even before this Gentile governor. Why did Jesus decide to have this conversation with Pontius Pilate? I don't know. Jesus makes three important affirmations here. He really, he really tells Pilate a lot with this statement. First of all, he says, I am a king. You're right, I'm a king. And then he says, for this purpose I was born. That's a statement about his humanity. He was born. For this purpose, he's about to say the purpose, I was born. And then he says, for this purpose I came into the world. So on the one hand, he was born. That's his humanity. But on the other hand, I came into the world because he existed Pilate's getting a lot of theology here in these discussions. And what's the purpose? 
to bear witness to the truth. This is his mission, to tell the truth. Jesus is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. His prayer to the Father was that his followers, that's us, would be sanctified by the truth. His word is truth. If you are here today and you aren't willing to hear the words of Christ, then you don't know the truth. In chapter 10, he said, anyone who hears my voice is of the truth. His sheep hear his voice. So Christ's mission was to come and proclaim truth. And even here in his final moments before this pagan Roman governor, he still proclaimed the truth. And so should we. Pilate responds with one more question at this point. What is truth? And I really struggle how to understand Pilate's question here. And, and a lot of people today want to say that Pilate was an early postmodernist. And I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of afraid we're reading too much of our day back into a 2,000-year-old statement. I don't know. Does Pilate really pause here at this moment to sort of contemplate truth with a capital T? Oh, what is truth? I, I, don't, I don't think that's what's... The bigger question, I think, is, is he sincere or is he cynical? Is he saying, I want to know what truth is? Or is he saying, oh, that, I think, is the bigger question. I'd like to leave that there for this minute, and we'll talk about that more next week when we finish this. But before we conclude, just notice that Pilate goes out from this first private conversation with Jesus, and there will be another, and he declares Jesus not guilty. Five times in the record, Pilate declares that Jesus is not guilty. Pilate crucifies a man that he believes is innocent. All right, so this is definitely half a sermon, and this is not the way I prefer to preach, uh, but this is a long section, and we've seen from Paul's writing to Timothy that I think it does deserve some sustained attention. So going back to 1 Timothy 6.13, what can we say at this point about Jesus' good confession before Pontius Pilate? Let me say this. I think this is a good way to understand the good confession, all right? Hear this. I know we're, I know we're coming to an end here, but just hear this summary. Jesus knew that his confession would cost him his life. Pilate has the ability to put him to death, but he confessed that he was truly king and Messiah. He never evaded danger, and he always entrusted himself to God the Father. And I would add, according to Hebrews 12, he entrusted himself to the Father for the sake of the glory that was set before him. I think that's the good. Jesus, in spite of the danger, held fast to what was true. He held fast to his mission. He held fast to the glory that awaited him. Let's just consider then in light of that what we've seen so far real quick. Number one, Jesus does not allow himself to be drawn into the hypocrisy and the corruption. And I just want to say this this morning and encourage you. If your goal is to root out all of the hypocrisy and corruption in our opponents, you're off mission. All sinners are inconsistent. Those who don't know Christ they don't know how inconsistent they are, and I would say they don't care. If your goal is to go around and expose their foolishness, good luck with that. And I think it's worth considering Jesus' response to all the hypocrisy and corruption. He is silent. He does a lot of talking in this passage, but he doesn't talk to them. And I know it's very frustrating to see the blatant hypocrisy of politicians and entertainers and corporate bigwigs, but it doesn't do us any good to get all worked up about a bunch of stuff we can't do anything about. Jesus could have done something right then, and he didn't, but he will. And Peter says that Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges rightly, and I would say so should we, because that rock made without hands is coming to destroy the kingdoms. of. And since we can't do anything to bring it down, we would do better to pray that that rock would come quickly. Number two, Jesus sets his sights 
on future glory, specifically his future kingdom. So in the midst of all of this hypocrisy and all of this corruption, I would say we should focus on what's real and permanent rather than on what's on temporary and passing away. All of those who seem to have power, they only have power that's been delegated to them from above. Pilate only has power that's been given to him. And we'll see that more next week. Pilate thinks he's in control, but he's not. The Jewish leaders think they're in control, but they're not. You ever hear that phrase, the right side of history? The right side of history is the side Jesus is on. Everything else is really, really dangerous. Again, John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you have made, may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have over. Third, Jesus remains faithful to his mission, which is to bear witness about the truth. A couple of years ago, there was that book by Rod Dreher. I liked the book, but I liked the title even better. Live Not by Lie. Jesus' mission was to bear witness to the truth, and he always remained true to his mission, even before Pilate. And I would like for us to leave this, as we think about the good confession of Christ before Pontius Pilate, I would like for Hope Bible Church to leave here today committed that we would say we will not live by lies. By the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus has sent us, we refuse to live according to the lies of this world. Lies about what will make us happy, lies about what it means to live as those created in the image of God, as male and female in this world, lies about what it means to be able to live according to your own desires, even lies about our own abilities and potential. I'm sorry, no matter what all those commercials say, you can't change the world. Jesus is going to change the world. You can't change the world. Jesus did change the world when he died on the cross and he rose again, and he's going to change the world again. But I'll tell you what you can do. You can live faithfully and truthfully in front of the people around you. Because you can't change the world, but you can change your family and your neighborhood and this church. That's where you can do work. If you're not living by lies, I think Jesus before Pilate is a model of how we should confess Christ before the world. I want to leave you with, leave you with this one passage. Don't turn there. Just listen to it. I'm going to close here. We'll, we'll revisit this next week. Write it down. Spend a little time thinking about it. This is a real challenge. This is 1 Peter 20. Uh, 2. No, there is no 1 Peter 20. 1 Peter 2, 20 through 24. Listen to it. Just listen. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to right. By his wound, we have been healed. Our Lord endured hell on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. He is our example, but more than that, he is our sacrifice. And we are all a bunch of hypocrites and liars and swindlers. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he did so trusting that the Father would raise him up from dead to glory. Do you trust in that sacrifice that God will raise you up to? 
Uh, we're going to turn now to the Lord's Supper. What an appropriate phrase to end on. By His wounds you have been healed. Uh, if you're serving the, uh, the table this morning, if you want to get up and go and grab the bread and the cup, if you're here this morning and you're visiting with us, we would, we would welcome you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you trust in Christ, if you trust that He indeed, that you indeed have been healed by His wounds, then we would invite you to partake with us. If not, then please wait. The blood of Jesus saves you, not this little cup and this little piece of cracker, but we would love, love, love to tell you, to explain more about what it means to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Uh, The guys are going to come, and they're going to hand out the bread and the cup. Hang on to that. I'll come up here in just a minute and read a passage, and we will take together.